All right, so uh, as Will so eloquently put, uh, my name's Steve Van Poulen, serve as executive pastor here, and I just want to say happy Memorial Day to everybody. It's great to be kicking off the summer with you, um, right? But today comes with this tension as well, and this weekend does really is, uh, also allows us to reflect on this sobering reminder, right, that um, the freedoms that we live in, the freedom to just gather here this morning and uh, do what we're doing did not come without sacrifice. You know, my dad, uh, who's here this morning as well, was in the Navy, he served in the Navy, and um, I'm just grateful for him. And, uh, right? Amen. And I know, I know there's others, and uh, just particularly mindful and grateful for those who have given their lives. Uh, so I know it's a tension we step into today. And the guys in the men's ministry are really shocked I'm talking about tensions. Okay, so um, one of the things that uh, I want to say and I always want to lead with, and I'm going to try to use the whole stage like Will said, uh, is, is just welcome. And I know every Sunday morning we have this interesting mixture of people who have been at Crossroads since the first day in 2004, and that's a huge gift. We also likely have some folks that are here for the first time, and uh, Will talked about it already, but I'm always really struck at every time we gather, God has specific purpose for the people in this room at this time. And so I just want to say welcome, glad you came. And uh, if you want to know a little bit more about Crossroads or get connected, you can find anybody who might have a, this sweet looking name tag on, or you can also go out to the Connection Center. So, so if you want to connect, go to the Connection Center. All right. Um, who here knows that Crossroads actually has a mission statement? Mission statement. Anybody? Not many of you. Okay. Well, Crossroads has a mission statement. We are on mission together. That's what we're doing. And the elders of the church put it this way. Crossroads is a biblical community where Jesus Christ transforms lives, renews the city, and impacts the world. That's what we want to be about. Not about ourselves, not about cultural relevancy, not about cultural traditions, although I really enjoyed singing praise God from whom all blessings flow. That's part of my tradition. This statement that I just said helps us stay on track most of the time. First and foremost, though, we're a biblical community, and that means a ton of things. But for right now, what it means is that together we have this awesome privilege to open the Bible so we can know him more and hopefully be transformed by him and then be able to know each other better. That's the task we have at hand. Now, this summer as a team, we've had the privilege of uh, looking at and teaching on the topic of the gospel in pictures. When Rod kicked off the series, he defined the gospel as God is going to make the world right and make us right. He led us into looking at the picture of homelessness from Genesis 3. And then Max Garter, who's our student ministries pastor, he looked at the image of the yoke from Matthew 11. Ken Lucas helped us see that uh, the picture of bread coming out of that passage in 2 Kings. And then last week, uh, Rod took the opportunity to uh, look at Exodus and see the picture of the rock smitten or water that flowed from the rock. And I just want to encourage you, all of these are really beautifully connected. If you haven't taken the time, uh, those messages are on our website and also available via podcast. I just want to encourage you, if you haven't listened to them, to do so. 
Today, what we're going to do is look at a very important day in the life of Jesus as a picture. And then within that day, a very specific interaction with Jesus in which he gives us, he provides a picture of the gospel, a very clear picture. And we're going to unpack that a little bit. So as we look to God's word, I just want to encourage you, uh, I'm going to be in, in and throughout the Bible. So if you don't have a copy and you want a copy, of course, you might have your phone or iPad like me, but uh, there's copies in the back. You could raise your hand. I'm sure someone would be willing to help me out. If you need a copy of God's word, uh, it would be handy to have. There's one up here, Sam. A couple up here. Uh, probably also a good time while this is happening to give you just a little bit of insight into my teaching style. Uh, like I said, the guys in the men's ministry would be somewhat familiar with this. Um, but it's my desire when put in these situations to uh, do my best to, first of all, teach with clarity. But my goal is to leave a ton on the table for you to go study on your own. I believe that to know God most clearly, we must be students of the way that he has most clearly revealed himself, which is in his word. So I just want to encourage you on that fact and also say this, as one who, when he was 25, when I was 25, uh, I stepped out on the porch, I, I remember it like it was yesterday, of an apartment I lived in Chicago, smoking a cigarette, had a beer in my hand, and the Bible. Wasn't pretty. Different guy back then, for sure. But I cracked open Matthew 11, and I started reading, but it was the first time that I ever really started reading it, saying, God, I'm seeking you. I want to know you more. And uh, you don't need to be a scholar or love reading because I was neither of those when I started. And it's a lifelong pursuit. I haven't arrived. That's going to be clear here in a minute. No, just kidding. And I did invest a lot of time, Will. It wasn't like just yesterday that this was decided, right? All right, so this day in Jesus' life we're going to look at is recorded in the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And synoptic is just a fancy word for similar and even though each writer had kind of different priorities when writing their accounts, each one chose to highlight this day and the interaction we're going to focus on specifically in striking similarity. So just listen for a minute before you open your Bibles and try to find where we're going. I just want you to envision the day a little bit with me, okay? Maybe close your eyes if you want to. So this day is probably like most in Jerusalem, just previous to one of the big festivals. Passover was fast approaching, and the streets were busy with people as they went about just their mundane, faithful lives. Chores were being done for sure, meals being made, street vendors opening their shops, rabbis, the teachers, and their Talmudim, or their students, were beginning their day. Perhaps they were heading up to the temple. The Praetorium, which is the center of Roman military rule in Jerusalem, at the time was probably more than usually packed in preparation to keep the peace in the next couple of weeks. Now on this day, I imagine that the money changers in the temple were setting up shop with just a bit more security, as in the day before, an incident with a man who appeared out of nowhere and overturned their tables and drove them out. This particular morning, as days previous, there was a lot of talk amongst the religious and the political elite, folks like the Pharisees and Sadducees, Herodians, teachers of the law, about this teacher, prophet, rabbi, Jesus. And all the groups were afraid. Preparing various ways to discount, trip up, discredit, arrest, or kill him. 
And Jesus himself is making his way up to the temple, teaching as he walked along about the kingdom of heaven and power of faith, using a fig tree as a symbol of the very power structure that would soon challenge him. Now, Jesus at this time is in his early 30s, and fast approaching was his time, the completion of the task that he was sent by the Father to accomplish. He had been walking with his disciples for a few years now, and they finally arrive in Jerusalem. A couple of days ago, in fact, the whole city was in an uproar as he entered the city, symbolically as king on the foal of a donkey. And this day, like really all of his so far, there was specific purpose in mind, particularly with his time in the temple. Okay, perhaps you've already found it on your own, but it's in Matthew, the account that we're going to be studying today. We're going to be learning from him uh, for Jesus' time in the temple. It's recorded from chapter 21, verse 12, to chapter 23, verse 39. And what I want to do, even though we've envisioned the setup to this day, what I want to do is preview Jesus' time in the temple uh, on this day in particular from a high level. Kind of like we're zipping up in a drone, right? We're going to look down on it from above. And I want to encourage you, actually, to feel free to thumb through the text as we preview and also uh, as we talk a little bit about the specific interaction. Now, I have an image of the temple or the city uh, that can also help us uh, get a vision of what this might look like. We have that uh, image, Susan? Awesome. Thank you. So, again, we imagine our day, and Jesus, I always forget there's a screen on that side, uh, and Jesus was working his way up to the temple, and it was busy, of course, people everywhere. You can see, obviously, the scope. This is a model of the whole city that exists in Jerusalem. But as he steps into the temple on this day, what do we find him doing? Matthew uh, chapter 21, verse 23 tells us that while he was teaching his disciples, it was as he was teaching, so his priority is to, still to his disciples, the chief priests and the elders of the people come to him. So he's likely in this left-hand portion or somewhere along Solomon's colonnade. Uh, that's what that kind of uh, all of the, uh, the red-roofed area and else is called. Power is on the mind of the chief priests and the elders for sure. And it, seemed clean, it seems clear that they really fear losing it. They present their question about where his authority comes from. And although he has all the authority, as we just sang about, he's not drawn into a fight. It's really not his uh, goal. Basically, he just ignores their whole line of discussion. And Jesus chooses to explain to them in a way that they would be very familiar with, parables, that they themselves are the problem. Jesus tells a parable, right? You'll see him as you scan through, involving two sons called to work in a vineyard, involving another one involving the tenants of a vineyard, and a final one involving the wedding banquet. They are beautiful and really deserve uh, to be studied on their own for all their significance, but, and I certainly hope you do that. After the wedding banquet, we come to chapter 22, verses 15 to 22. And this is actually the text and the specific interaction that we're going to look at today. So drop down to eye level, and if you're able to, stand to your feet. And out of respect for God's word, we're going to read the portion of text that we're going to really focus in on. 
So it's chapter 22, 15 to 22 from the NIV. And if you have one of those blue Bibles, it's either 699 or 803. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. All right, you guys can have a seat. Now we're going to come back. We're going to dive deep. Don't worry. Um, but what I want to do is zip back up in the drone before we do to round out the summary of our day that Jesus spends in the temple. And we're focused in on the time in the temple on this day. So at this point now, the Pharisees and Herodians, they've taken their shot. Text makes it clear they've walked away amazed. I also imagine a bit dismayed. Following our text, the Sadducees are now up with their best shot. Kind of an odd story about uh, brothers and a wife. But a few verses later, in Matthew 22, verse 29, Jesus dismisses them quickly. You are in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God, is what he said. I wanted to highlight that verse because it convicts me every time I read it. And I wanna, I, I'm hoping God will use it to convict you. Do you know, do we know the scriptures and the power of God? It's a question we have to ask ourselves. So who's next? Sadducees are off the scene. Chapter 22, verse 34, it's another Pharisee, an expert in the law, then takes a turn with a simple question. Teacher, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second, like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Now, I actually don't imagine that's exactly what the Pharisees expected to get back, or the Pharisee, I should say, when he asked for the commandment, Jesus simply quotes Shema back to him, something that they would have recited on a daily basis, likely. But it's interesting, connected to that, and one of the other counts, if you choose to go study it on your own, that in the interaction with this person in particular, Jesus says back to him, you are close to the kingdom of God. It's at that point in our text, as we look at the day, that Jesus poses his own question to the Pharisees, which exposes their lack of understanding of Scripture again. And finally, they all decide, apparently, that it's time to stop asking Jesus any questions. But Jesus takes this opportunity, the open window, all of chapter 23, just to detail for those that are in his hearing the failures of these teachers and where they, where we, should be getting our direction. One teacher, one father, and one Messiah. You can circle chapter 23, 8 through 11 for that idea, doing it in humility. So as I vested time looking at the various records of this day, 
Uh, in Mark, it's at, it starts at Mark 11, verse 27. And in Luke, it starts at 20, verse 1, for those of you that might be taking notes. It struck me that Jesus seems to have a particular concern, or, rather, or also a set of connected concerns on his mind that are threaded into his responses to the challenges that come his way and the teaching that flows from all of these interactions as he teaches his students, not only then, but now. It's a great thing about God's word. Jesus is teaching us now. Think of us as his disciples sitting here listening to him. Thinking back through what we just reviewed, we might be tempted to think that um, challenging the human powers in place was his main priority. Somewhat reasonable, I suppose. Or we can easily be convinced to focus on the politically charged statements that Jesus is making. A lot of us like to do that. Or that by what can seem like publicly humiliating the smartest people in the temple, maybe popularity's on his mind. Could be. Although I'm not saying he isn't hitting those notes, I want simply to contend that Jesus' main concern is simply people. His main concern is you and me. One short story from this day not recorded in Matthew uh, really presses this point about people because we get this picture of the fact that as Jesus leaves this temple, I can't imagine how many people were here, he notices a widow. And a widow who gives essentially everything she has as a sacrifice. So I think, to me, if you look back through it, you're going to see that people is his main priority. Okay, review time over. Put away the drone for a little bit. And let's go back to Matthew 22, 15 to 22. We're going to look at it a little bit closer in some of the pictures that God gives us there. Verse 15, uh, which ties to the end of the most previous parable, I believe, it kind of seems if we can picture it that uh, while the chief priests and the elders were doing their challenge, the Pharisees are also there. And, um, you know, maybe Jesus kind of does this first teaching mid-morning, Pharisees there listening, trying to learn a little bit, lunchtime or something like that. He goes, connects with the Herodians, and they devise this perfect plan. Uh, this question about the tax. So as we look at this interaction, though, I want us to first ask a few questions because we need a few details at least to have a better idea of what might be happening. Uh, first, who are the Pharisees and the Herodians? Well, we're entering the story in a time where Israel is a nation under the authority of another. So Israel is under Roman rule. And that's important because as we look at these two groups, the best way to describe them is this. The Pharisees, kind of the ultra-conservative Jewish leaders elite who despised Roman rule. So that's kind of one camp. And the Herodians, in very general terms, are kind of the liberal-leaning Jewish leaders elite who are working hard to straddle the fence. The Herodians are essentially named after King Herod, who's not ruling at the time, but Herod had this two sides to him, so to speak. He loved Rome, and he loved all that Rome represented. But at the same time, he wanted to maintain his Jewish roots and his claim as the king of the Jews. Bottom line, basically, these two groups hated each other. And it's very unlikely that they'd be working together, but here they are. And really, the Herodians, the only context we really know them in the Bible is in their opposition to Jesus. 
Second, verse 17, we have to ask the question, who is Caesar? That might seem like an obvious question, uh, but Caesar, of course, is the emperor of Rome, most powerful man in the world, I would say. Uh, specifically, it's Tiberius Caesar, which is really all we need to know. Next, verse 17, if you're looking at it, what's the imperial tax? Uh, the imperial tax, also known as tribute or poll tax, essentially this is the ta tax that's required to be paid by conquered nations to the ruling nation. So this was the tax that the nation of Israel was required to pay as a confirmation and a representation of the fact that they were submitting to Roman rule. And specifically, each adult, man, woman, slave-free, would be required to pay this tax. Verse 19, just a quick, what's a denarius? Simple, uh, just a Roman currency, most frequently coin that's used to pay this particular tax. Finally, uh, as I was looking at these questions, verse 18, I think we at least have to ask the question uh, for us trying to put ourselves back in that time, who's Jesus or what do we know about him at this time? That's a really important thing for us to know. So what we know, a few things. Jesus is a Jew, he's a teacher, he's a rabbi, he's a prophet, known as a miracle worker and a healer, friend of sinners, all of us included, including what the Pharisees considered maybe to be the worst, tax collectors and prostitutes. And he's claimed to be the son of God, Many consider him the prophesied Messiah. So on our text, as we ask about kind of what's going on, on a human level, we've got these two diametrically opposed groups of people unified in fear and hatred of Jesus. They don't want to lose their power, their influence, and the favor of the people, and they plan what they believe is the perfect trap. So Jesus has gotten back to his teaching, right? Suddenly from the back row, I could just picture, teacher! You're awesome, clearly, trying to get a little flattery on the table, maybe just to throw him off. But I've got a quick question. Should we pay the imperial tax or not? Now, he asked this question uh, basically quickly to give you the two sides. The Pharisees, they figure that if he answers yes, he will lose credibility with the Jewish people. Then on the other side of that, kind of the other side of the coin, you've got the Herodians who are figuring, well, if he answers no, they can simply label him as an insurrectionist or a rebel, have him arrested probably. They figure they've got him either way. But it's clear that Jesus has already noticed them. And that's an important thing to know about Jesus. It's something that has been really striking me in my study of the text recently. It's all over our text too certainly threaded through our story, that he sees everybody, not only in the temple, but in Jerusalem. Not only that, but today, do we know that Jesus sees us? He knows us. Now, in seeing them, Jesus is quite clear on their intent. He knows their intentions, either through their demeanor, maybe, or uh, some would suggest that knowing is a reflection of his God nature. But he calls them out on the spot answering their first question with his own, pretty typical habit of a rabbi and Jesus. Why are you trying to trap me? Show me a denarius. Well, he doesn't have one on him, which should tell you something right out of the gate. But equally, the fact that they could produce one is also very telling, right? 
The text doesn't really show us in detail um, if it was the Pharisees or the Rhodians that produced the coin, but historical documents predating our text, just a little bit of additional study reveals that the Pharisees, who, like I said, feared losing political power, are already using this currency. So it's easy for us to picture that these coins were probably spilled all over the temple courts the day before when Jesus overturned the money changers' tables. So the next question that's asked, verse 20, whose image and inscription? So I have a picture here uh, of the Tiberius Denarius. I had to say that slowly. And um, it just helps us envision a little bit, right? Close your eyes, see this strewn all over the temple courts and them producing it out of their pocket. Uh, the denarius of Tiberius would uh, carry his garlanded portrait, which you see on the left. And this is the inscription that surrounds it. Tiberius Caesar, Divi Augusti, Filius Augustus. On the reverse would be the inscription Pontifex Maximus, or just Pontif Maxim abbreviated. So on this coin, he is claiming himself to be son of the divine Augustus, or son of God, and also high priest on the other. So the boy, uh, high priest, and in light of the text, both groups, I think, personally, would have cringed a little bit at either producing it and carefully examining the coin, and even saying the name, the name Caesar because it exposes the truth of the side that they're already on and the fact that for themselves they've really already answered the question, right? Well, without getting caught in their snare, Jesus agrees with their answer, suggesting they simply give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. And really, radical fact, Jesus is all good with us paying our taxes, right? He's the one who establishes authorities, so he's happy to let them have their place, and apparently they're due. He knows as well as the Herodians and Pharisees that according to the economic system of that day, this money, any of the money with his image and inscription on it actually belongs to Caesar. So the delivery of his money back to him is pretty simple. We can't miss though that uh, at least to the Pharisees specifically, this is a pretty radical concept that Jesus is bringing to the table. This idea that they could live in worshiping God as God and yet still submit to a human authority that might not worship God. But I want to stay on track for our main concern uh, and Jesus' main concern because that's what he's concerned with in the temple that day. Even though it's really not needed at all to satisfy the question, Jesus adds the statement uh, in verse 21, and to God, what is God's? Now, it's no mistake, very intentional as are the specific inclusion of the words image and inscription in verse 20. But think about it. He probably could have asked, because they've already produced the coin, whose is it? Well, they would have said Caesar's. And he could have easily said, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and it would have been sufficient to answer the challenge. But I think the thing we need to see is that Jesus desperately cares about the image. He has something to say about that inscription, and he wants back what is his. It's what the whole day in the temple was about. So let's talk about image a little bit. Two things I want to point out that I think the original hearers would have very likely caught, equally applicable to us. 
The first comes out of Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Female and male, we are the only aspect of God's creation that bear his image. He breathed life into us. He breathed breath into us. And we are like him. So I guess the question is, do we know what that means? And like many things, the Bible simply does not spell it out in the detail that we'd often like to have, exactly what that means. And I personally think that's intentional. But at the very least, it means this, that we are the only part of creation that are uniquely equipped with the ability to relate to each other deeply, to relate to him deeply, that represent him within creation and are called to do the types of things that he does. So that's the question. Do you know today that you are created in the image of God, that the likeness of God is you? It's not in you, it is you. And because of that, each of us has this unique ability to love him and love others deeply, represent what he is about, and be about his good work in this creation. This is the likeness in us, and we have to recognize it. And Jesus in our text is face to face with the biggest challenge to that image, which is hope in something other than himself. And that really leads us into kind of a the other aspect of this image that I want to lead us into. Exodus 24 to 6 reads like this. You shall make for yourself no other image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, some use this text to ask a question, whose image do you bear? Kind of sets spiritual and secular in opposition. But I contend that what we've talked about, we can bear no other image than that of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that created us. We can bear no other image. It's impossible. But we can choose to worship other images. The Pharisees and Herodians possessed a coin with Caesar's image, but they don't bear that image. They worship it, and there is a huge difference. They have the coin. Jesus is standing right in front of them, and they've missed him the whole time. Now, Jesus refers to the Old Testament several times during our day. I really encourage you to spend some time with that fact. But I can imagine, I think, as he stood there, he could have certainly had Jeremiah 2 on his mind. Verse 5 reads, and they followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. And like it in verse 11, God laments, but my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. So the question they seem to have refused to hear and that we must hear is simple. 
Have you traded the image that God created you in for worthless idols? What's in your pockets? What about these? Right? I've got it in my pocket. What is it we need to repent of worshiping instead of God is the question. You know, in our day, like we talked about, it's only a short time after our tasks, if you remember, that the expert in the law asks this question. What's the greatest commandment? And it's almost like Jesus is saying, let me tell you what my image looks like. It's so simple. Love me with everything you have and then go and love others. That's the image. Do we love them as much as we love things in our lives, if we're honest? How about your neighbor? Keep in mind, that includes your enemy. How are we at loving them? I want to shift from the image discussion right now and just talk for a minute about the use of this word inscription, uh, inscription in particular. I went uh, and spent some time. I was just in search of some other texts because Jesus is always thinking about the whole when he's speaking. And I came across Zechariah 3. It's an amazing text, and I just want to highlight verses 6 through 9. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come, I am going to bring my servant, the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua? There are seven eyes on that stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. So the branch is Jesus, and he's standing right before them, the complete fulfillment of this text is about to occur, and the true high priest, Jesus, who in this text makes it clear, is going to bear the inscription. So that inscription that is alluded to, that's us. He's bearing us. Coin bears inscription. Jesus is going to bear the inscription, and he's going to remove the sin of the land in a single day. So on the coin is the inscription of self-proclaimed high priest who bears no, holds no power. You know, you see, one of the interesting things that we get taken into and certainly was true of this day is that for centuries the world had hoped for a leader that would unify the empires of this region into a single empire led by pharaoh, an emperor, a queen, a king, a priest. Maybe today we hope in a president. But they all failed and will continue to fail to deliver. Now, this text from Zechariah, the end of it, presents us with something we haven't spoken to in a lot of detail, but it's really important, uh, and it brings us kind of back into some thought process related to the image. So together, we share the image we talked about, but we also share the choice made to forsake God and the reality of being made in his image. Now, I don't know about you, but... I really, I do. Uh, I set myself up as that image and spend an awful lot of time worshiping myself. 
not to mention the other things of this world. Sin is a real deal. And although we're created in his image, we broke the image. And we all need the image to be restored. Jesus sees it all around him on this day, and it's what he longs for. So this is where it's helpful for us to add some reflection back on our texts as a way to help us understand and clear it up a little bit. Paul uh, writes a letter to the church of Colossae. And in chapter 1, verse 15, he says and tells us that the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him and through him all things were created. So Jesus is the new image. It's about to be restored, broken in sin. The path looks something like this. It's a whole sermon of its own, right? Uh, But there are some truths... I would encourage you to spend some time in Romans 5 through 8, but I've just selected a couple of things that tie really to what we're talking about. Three truths out of that text. Romans 5 verse 8 says this, but God demonstrated his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Fact. 8 verse 1, Romans 8 verse 1 says this, Now, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that is, those who are living in him. Fact. And finally, connected deeply into our story, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. Jesus offers to all of us today the free gift of a restored image and calls us to be conformed into that image. So will we receive it? All right, one more piece of this interaction in Matthew to unpack. And it's the final statement. And to God, what is God's? I believe what Jesus is saying here, in addition to the functional reality, right? There's a functional reality of paying taxes to Caesar and potentially taxes to the temple. But other than that, I think he's saying, get out of my way. Get out of the way of my image. I've envisioned and been broken many times as I've studied this text. I can't get it out of my mind. The image of Jesus in that temple, teaching, just walking amongst the people, walking amongst the very people made in his image, seeing each one of them, knowing their brokenness, feeling the rejection of their image knowing what's about to occur. And so now with both opposing sides of the power structure challenging him, he's saying, you are in the way of people, the very people you are here to point to me. Give the people back to me. They had all lost sight. I believe they had all lost sight of what was around them the whole time, his image. Now, for a moment, if we zip back up in the drone, right, turn that thing back on, think about some of the allusions to the facts of this from our day. Um, So we go from beginning to end. Uh, At first, he says, I sent John to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you ignored it. But people see it. I set you here to care for the vineyard for me. Again, an allusion to Jeremiah 2, where it says, I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. 
I prepared a feast for you, and you chose not to come and eat, but others are. He reminds them that he is a God of the living. And you have simple commands, just two of them really. Everything else relies on them. Love me, love the people who are like yourself, made in my image. You're supposed to be reflecting my image, but you're tying up heavy loads on people. You care only about what people see and think. You care only about power and prestige and are full of pride. I am opening the door to the kingdom wide, but you're shutting it in people's faces. You're converting my children to hell. You're leading people nowhere. You've completely forgotten what it means to represent me. You've forgotten that what I love is justice and mercy and faithfulness. It's amazing to me, though, that even uh, in, in chapter 23, after this long warning to the people and warning to the leaders of the day, Jesus once again reveals the amazing power of his love and his care for people, even those very people that were opposing him and seeking to destroy him. Just before leaving the temple that day, he says, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. You weren't willing. So with all this on the table, what should we take away? The first question that comes to mind are, are you willing? You are Jesus' main priority, not only on uh, this day recorded in history that we're looking at, but here this morning. Are you willing to recognize the image of God that you bear? You can't escape it. Each one of us, like I said, doesn't matter. We bear the image of God. Second, are you willing to repent? Are you willing to look at choices that you make Again, you can bear no other image, but we can worship lots of images. What are those that are in the way? And what needs to be repented of? It's a beautiful thing, repentance. You come to the Father. And then finally, are you willing to receive? Are you willing to receive the free gift of the inscription, right? The righteousness and restored image that Jesus has to offer and then are we willing? These are big questions, guys. Are we willing to represent God and all he is about, loving him with all we are and our neighbors that are in his image? And then are we willing to reflect? Reflect the image. Jesus sees, and we're to be conformed into his image. Linda and Tara uh, were up here last week, if you had a chance to hear a little bit about what's going on with this thing called Treetops Collective. And I was really struck by Linda said the same thing. Are we willing to see people? Are we willing to look past? Uh, we need to look past these things. Gender, race, culture, religion, economic status, disabilities of all kinds. Are we willing to look past these things and anything else that's in the way to see the image of God? I really believe that our ability to see each other is equal to our ability to reflect that image to others. So we have the opportunity this morning, I think, to open our eyes 
because the picture of the gospel is sitting right next to you. All right, let's pray. As I was studying, I was impacted by this commentary on uh, the Zechariah passage in general. It's titled, A Promise Concerning the Messiah. And I just want to read it as a prayer, so listen closely. All believers from the beginning had looked forward to it in all the various types and predictions. All believers after Christ's coming would look to it with faith, hope, and love. Christ shall appear for all his chosen as the high priest when before the Lord with the names of all Israel, with our names graven in the precious stones of his breastplate, that inscription, by him sin shall be taken away, both the guilt, dominion, shame. He did it in one day, the day which he suffered and died. What should terrify when sin is taken away? Then nothing can hurt, and we sit down under Christ's shadow with delight and are sheltered by it. And gospel grace, coming with power, makes men forward to draw others towards it. God, uh, give us eyes to see you clearly. Seeing you clearly helps us recognize the image of you that we are. Help us, Father, as uh, convict us, Holy Spirit, of those things that we need to repent of, that we are elevating, that we are lifting up, worthless idols that we're worshiping. And Father, um, would we be in this perpetual place of receiving the free gift of righteousness that you've given us and then go to represent you and reflect you to the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. If, if you're here this morning and God's been doing some work and he's convicted you on this idea of recognizing his image, that that is you, or that uh, maybe, maybe he's revealed you and shown you uh, an image, some worthless idol that you are worshiping, and there's a time that you have to enter into repentance or or finally, maybe you just need to receive the free gift of righteousness. I just want to encourage you that uh, both up here or in the prayer room upstairs, if that's something, if that's where you're at, uh, I just want to encourage you to, to take that step and let it be sealed by this truth as a blessing that we receive today as we go. It's from Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. All right, you guys, have a great Memorial Day. Good week.